in three things we'll talk about. Apathy is more dangerous than it seems. Jesus is more engaged than he seems. And repentance is less emotional than it seems. So why don't you stand up? We'll read the passage. He instructs, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel watching over this church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are symbolic of the seven churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but aren't, and you found them to be false. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and you haven't grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent or turn and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It was a heretical group of teachers at the time. Whoever has ears, your ears too. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're skipping ahead a chapter now, this next letter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, or the true one, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve or ointment to put in your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here am I. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why don't we pray and we'll get into this. Lord Jesus... Whoever has ears, we have ears. Let us hear tonight. We don't presume to be able to hear in the way you're talking about hearing without your help. And so help us to hear. Like we prayed last week, show us yourself again. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Thanks. So from time to time, uh, as I'm talking to folks, getting to know people, um, I'll ask them over the past four years, hey, why do you come to RUF? Why did you start coming to RUF? And um, so a, a frequent answer from a lot of people is something like this. Well, uh, I come to RUF because it, it calms me down, it just brings me peace. I feel like the week is so chaotic and stressful, and Tuesday nights for me just kind of... They're my warm and cozy place. They make me calm again. They make me feel at peace, warm inside. And so I leave just kind of ready to go into the rest of my week. And part of me, when I hear that, I I like hearing that. I mean, we want to be a place of rest. We want to be a place of encouragement. 
But the other part of me is, is thinking in the back of my head, have you ever read the Bible? Like, do you know what's in the Bible? Do you know all of who God is? Because the words like the ones we just read are anything but peaceful and comforting and in- Maybe they're a little bit encouraging, but they're not peaceful. They're not warm and cozy. They're not, man, I'm ready to go into the rest of my week after that. It's Jesus pulling his church aside and rebuking her in a, some ways and some words that are pretty harsh. And it's not just that that's surprising, but it's also that this grates against kind of our default assumption of what Jesus is like. We talked about this last week. We, kind of a default mode, we cut Jesus down to our size. He's one of us. He's buddy-buddy. He's kind of the big teddy bear. You can run up in his lap whenever you want. You can ignore him when you don't want him. But then last week, we read of this Jesus who is, who is sitting on a throne, who, whose face is like the noonday sun, who when people see him as he is, they feel like they're dying. Every person who saw Jesus glorified, raised up in the scriptures, had to be told before anything else happened, don't be terrified. It's the first thing the angel or Jesus had to tell anybody who saw him, don't be terrified, because they were. It says his eyes are like flaming tongues of fire. He sees through everything. His mouth is like a double-edged sword. It pierces through the noise. His voice is like Niagara. It doesn't just debate with scoffers and mockers. It overwhelms them. It drowns out their noise. His feet are like bur- are tempered steel, like burnished bronze. His is a kingdom that doesn't go anywhere. It was there before the Egyptians. It was there during Rome. It was there after the fall of Rome. The Spaniards, the English, the Americans, everything. We come and go. He stays forever. He rules over it all. That's not teddy bear Jesus, right? That's what we talked about last week. That's what Revelation 1 is about, is we need a new perspective about Jesus. God has to lift us out of our kind of cozy little views of the rescuer of humanity and see Him as He is from a whole new perspective. That's why I put this quote on the front of your bulletin and why I love it so much is Jesus is no children's book or storybook figure. And to write, a theologian asked the question, what would it look like if the curtain between heaven and earth were suddenly pulled up? And maybe for the first time ever, it revealed the Jesus who had been there all along, but somehow we had managed either to ignore or cut down to our own size. When Jesus is, is my size, uh, he is kind of out of sight, out of mind. When Jesus is my size, he's kind of an equal with me. Uh, And when I need him, he's there. And when I don't need him, he's not there. And T. Wright is saying, what would it look like if the curtain fell down? Well, Revelation is the curtain not falling down, but being torn down by Jesus himself. Saying, you must deal with who I am. The way I am. Not the way you thought I was. And that's what tonight's passage is all about. It's the subtle but dangerous ways that we cut all of us. By the way, me, I'm using the pronoun we. We... Cut Jesus down to size. The way that we make him manageable and small. Uh, And the way we become apathetic. So that's the first point on the bulletin we're going to talk about. Apathy is much more dangerous than it seems. The true danger of apathy has to be revealed to you. It's not something that will occur to you. It's not something you can intuit from your own common sense. And the, the... 
the reasons apathy is so dangerous, there's a few. It's not an exhaustive list. You could probably add a ton of your own reasons why apathy in, in school or apathy in a relationship or apathy in a job is so dangerous. But apathy with God, apathy with your heart, your soul, is terrifyingly dangerous. One reason it's so dangerous is because it's so gradual. Apathy is a condition that you don't even care if you have it. That's pretty dangerous. You can, you, can, you can sit down and read through the diagnostic stuff, the symptoms of it, and just be like, eh, no, it doesn't bother me. That's danger, my friends, right? That's danger. You don't even care if you have it. That's what Jesus is talking about in, in, in the second letter of the Laodiceans. That's what lukewarm means. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're meh. You're meh. Doesn't really matter. Apathy is something that kind of sits lazily in its seat and demands to everybody else, entertain me. Persuade me. You're just not doing it. I'm sorry. Try harder. Make me laugh harder. Get my attention. It's on you, not me. Get it. Dance around for me. That's what apathy does. It's lukewarmness. It's not having an opinion. It's not coming down with a solid belief on something. In Laodicea, I'm amazed by this one thing. The difference in their opinion of themselves and Jesus' opinion of them. This is a church, by the way. Okay, we're talking about Christians here. This is one of, one of the key churches in the first century. And, and their opinion of how they're doing is radically different than Jesus' opinion of how they're doing. So, let's say you co- that you come up to the Laodiceans at RUF on their Tuesday night. And you say, hey man, how you doing? This person would say, dude, life is going well right now. It's awesome. Say like, I, I, this is one of those times in life where like, God's just blessing me. I don't, have, I don't feel like I have any needs. I got everything I, I need. Kind of like, school's going well, life's going well, relationship's going well. That's how they would answer your question, how are you doing? Ask the exact same question to Jesus and he would say this. We read it. You don't realize is what he prefaces it with. You don't feel. You don't see. You don't notice that in fact you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We'll come back to some of this language he's using a little bit. But get this before we move on. Apathy changes you. It doesn't leave you as it found you. And you're the only one who's not in on the joke. Everybody else is aware of it. Man, someone seems a lot more cynical lately. Or where are they? Or you've changed. You're the only... I'm the only one not in on the joke that I have a complacent, apathetic, lukewarm heart. It changes you. It doesn't leave you as it found you. It doesn't drop you off at your house later and it's the same old you. You're a different person when it drops you off, if it drops you off. Another reason it's so dangerous is it's so stinking easy, right? It's just so easy. Apathy is one of those things, it's almost, there's almost a beautiful quality to it because you don't have to do anything to get it. It's free. No sacrifice, no cost, no effort, no work, no decision has to be made. What do you have to do to coast? Nothing. What do you have to do to drift? Nothing. What do you have to do to become dull? Nothing. What do you have to do to uh, become indifferent, complacent, apathetic? Absolutely nothing. You don't have to do anything. And that's very attractive for overworked, stressed, busy people, right? Apathy is just so attractive to us. It's so warm and cozy for those reasons. Apathy is dangerous because it blinds you to where you really are. 
Or to put it, I think, better, apathy is dangerous because no matter where you are, you think you're okay. Usually with a, with a person who's sober and kind of alert, how you think you're doing is very dependent on where you are. If you're in a just, just like urgent danger, you realize, I'm not doing well. I need to get out of this. Fight or flight needs to happen. But with apathy, no matter where you are, the same answer, I'm doing fine. This doesn't really bother me. Did you notice... Jesus' question to the church in Ephesus, when he says uh, in in verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. He is the one who has to draw their attention to it, because they don't know. Consider. Have you thought about how far you've fallen? Have you thought about how far you've drifted, coasted? Have Have you thought about, has it occurred to you how apathetic you've become? Really quick, ironic, cheer up, because this is kind of depressing. Here's one, one thing you can cheer up about. If you walked into this room tonight against all odds because you're the apathetic one, you're the one drowning in a sea of apathy, and somehow, some way, you ended up in this room tonight, um, you can at least know you're not the only one. You can at least know you're not a freak. You can at least know it doesn't mean you're some different kind of Christian because you deal with this. Uh, It's happening 60 years after Jesus died, was resurrected, and reigning over his church. 60 years. Some of these people saw Jesus, touched him. Or they had parents or friends who walked around with him during his time on earth. This isn't a long time to become apathetic, yet they were. This is normal in in the sense that it's prevalent. In all of us, there is not a Christian who has ever lived who has not been infected with apathy for some duration of time. And so, a little bit of a, you're at least on the map. There's hope. It's not like you're some kind of category of person that the Bible doesn't get or doesn't know what to tell you, or you come in and you're like, man, they're never going to speak to where I am and what I need. But you're also, you're not without hope either. Um, you're not without hope because God here wakes you up to the danger. And He wakes you up to how the danger works. This is how apathy works. Apathy is like a new... like I don't know if some of y'all have a commute into, into class in the mornings. You turn on the radio. You hear the same voice every morning. Well, it's a brisk and bright day in Las Cruces. The time is 9 a.m. on the dot. It's going to be a beautiful day today. Now in the news... Apathy is the newscaster that always has fake news and it's always the same. And now for the news, God is still far, far away, still distant, still doesn't care about anything in your life except your screw-ups, still doesn't care to bother with anything or help you with anything except is right there in the midst of your apathy, wondering what you're going to do about it and when you're going to get serious again. That's the morning newscast from apathy every morning, day after day, day after day, day after day. And this passage is waking us up to that. That we should feel the danger of this stuff. The biggest danger, before we get to the second point, is this. That kind of the mega danger of all is you don't want to fix it. You're apathetic. You can listen to what I just said. Yeah, I know this is a new cast every morning, but it's kind of entertaining. It's a good show. I like it. It makes me laugh every now and then. It gives me something to do in the car. It's a long commute. You don't care about the story that we just shared. You don't care about any of this stuff. You might tell yourself, I care, but two days from now, you won't. How many of us still have the resolutions we had a month ago? I don't even make resolutions anymore. 
because they last two days. But the problem with apathy, apathy is we don't want to fix it. Or if we do, three days later we don't. Three days later we don't care. Eh, that's too hard. Which is why you must know point two. That Jesus is nearer than he seems. This is the beginning of the ray of hope. Shooting into this dark, stuck, nasty place. Jesus is nearer than he seems. He's nearer than your apathy tells you he is. Look at this uh, this first verse on the page. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Jesus says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We talked about this the past couple of weeks. What's the, what's the sim- symbolism of the seven lampstands or seven lights? They're the seven churches, right? They're the seven kind of key churches in that time. And seven in Revelation is the number of wholeness and fullness. So he's not just saying these particular seven churches and that's it. It's, it's the church, all of Christ's people, all around the world in all generations. And where is Jesus? In their midst, walking among them, with them, near them. And he's not just near them in some sanitized way. How are they doing while he's with them? I picked two of the more innocent letters. You read about the church in Sardis, the church in Pergamum. My goodness. Some some bad stuff going down there. Which is to say this, the bad stuff in your life right now that you're not honest with God about or other people that you're hiding, that you think you're the only one who deals with it or knows about it, the apathy you're stuck in, the complacency, the indifference that I deal with, you have to know, Christian, you have to know Jesus is right smack in the middle of it. If you're not a Christian, you have to know that Jesus is willing to be right smack in the middle of it, which should bring you great hope. He's not kind of off, far away, somewhere receiving bad report cards about you. Dang it. Still don't care. Still have a cold, hard heart. Still go through all the motions of church and campus ministry and everything else, but they're dead to me. They they have a reputation of being this awesome Christian, this really growing, vibrant person, but deep down inside, they know it. And I know it. That there's nothing. It's been years since they enjoyed any sense of communion with me. It's been years since any sense of Jesus is at the center of my life in a real sweet, tender, vibrant way. If that is you, you've got to hear me say this and you've got to let it stick in your brain or get written on your paper. Jesus is in the midst of the stuff you think he won't touch with a 30-foot pole. Not my words, his words. He says, I am in walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. He is in the midst of your crap. He's in the midst of you not caring. And He's there caring. And that's important. So where is Jesus in the midst of our apathy? He's right smack dab in the middle of it. Which is why He knows you. Inside and out. He knows you better than you know yourself. Because if you're at least hit your 20s by now, have have you had the little epiphany in life that I don't know myself? If not, that's coming right around year 20 or so. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He knows why you do what you do better than you do. He knows why you avoid what you avoid. He knows why you hate what you hate, love what you love. 
He knows why certain things make you icky and certain things light you on fire. He knows it all because He's with you. He's near you. He's in the midst of His church. That's why He says in in, in verse 2 and in verse 15, I know your deeds. I know them. I know your deeds. I know what's really going on. You thought you were this way, Laodiceans, but you don't realize you're actually this way. This is what's going on. Jesus is immune to apathy because Jesus cares infinitely for His Father, for His people, for His world. He doesn't, meh, deal with that later. It's not who He is. What does it mean that He's near to His people? If you're connected to Jesus, if you're a Christian, what does it mean that He's near you? Well, it means, I think in two ways at least, probably more. But the first is the most obvious. I said we'd talk about it. Here it is. He's near you to warn you. Right? The bigger the warning, the more subtle and hidden the danger. That makes sense, right? There aren't, road, there aren't signs on the side of the road that say, don't cross the double lines, the double yellow lines. Because it's an obvious danger if you go into head oncoming traffic, uh, things are not going to go well for you. Stoves don't have giant warning labels on the front of it saying, beware of extreme heat, because it's an obvious danger. The kind of items that we have or places we go that have just these bright red warnings are when the danger is most hidden and most subtle. That's when you get the, most, the loudest, harshest warning. It's your space heater that says this giant red thing with a skull and crossbones, ventilate, carbon monoxide danger. It'll make you go to sleep and you'll never wake up. It's why beaches have danger, sharks or riptide or jellyfish. Because you can't see it. Why is Jesus so blunt? Why is he so cut to the chase, so harsh with you and you and me tonight? Why is this isn't the tender little, come on up into my lap and let me... Why is it so bam? Because it's so subtle. It's as subtle and as hidden and as dangerous and as, as insidious as we've talked about the past few minutes. That's why he warns us in such a loud way. The proof of this is verse 19. I'm not making this up either. Verse 19, Jesus says, it's the people that I love that I rebuke. It's the people that I love that I warn, that I discipline. The second reason Jesus draws near, why it matters that he's near, is to extract us from our apathy. This is when the news gets really good. To extract us from our apathy. And I should say it better. I shouldn't say that the reason He comes near to us is to warn us and to extract us. He was already with you and near you, okay? Right? That's how He knew what was going on. That's how He's able to just go, not like, I'll be there in three hours if traffic's good. Wait for me. He's there. Bam. Right there on the spot. Already on the scene to warn you. Already on the scene to extract us from our apathy. And I I would say this. This is probably the most important thing you need to hear tonight. Jesus must extract you from your apathy because you don't want to extract yourself and neither do I. Right? We already said that. The problem with apathy is you don't want to deal with it. The problem with apathy is you're like, man, that was a a helpful message on apathy and you write down some notes and you put a reminder on your phone and by next week you're like, what's RUF? I was there? Huh? What happened? (laughs) It's just the way it works. 
Someone outside of you has to come and snatch you out of it. There's a guy named Joe Novenson. He's a pastor in Chattanooga. I've quoted him before and I am borrowing liberally from him right here. I'm going to read it directly. But uh, Novenson compares spiritual apathy to, to, he calls it spiritual hypothermia. He says this, you know what hypothermia is. It's the steady steady decline, the gradual decline of your core temperature to the point where it begins to tumble and your body can't recover. Experienced hikers call the warning signs of hypothermia uh, the umbles. You start to mumble because it's harder and harder to think. You start to fumble. Your fingers don't work. You can't zip up your jacket. You start to stumble. Large muscles are being starved of oxygen. And you get to a point where you don't, don't even feel the cold anymore. You become irrational, sometimes even taking off your clothes. Next is unconsciousness and then death. The only sure way hypothermia can be arrested and reversed is with an external heat source. He goes on to talk about people just like the Ephesians, the Laodiceans, the Sardines. You call them Sardines, I guess? I guess you do. Sardines. The Lost Crucians. All of us. The way he said they were when they heard these words. They were in a condition of steady spiritual decline. You might say the core temperature of their souls was dropping Maybe they weren't unconscious yet, but they were sure getting there. He says, what was wrong with them? Their devotion had become cold. Their repentance was frozen. Their faith was shutting down. He said, this is the greatest danger the Christian faces. A decline of his or her faith. What's the only cure? He already said it. The external heat source. He said, you must be exposed to the heat and the warmth of Jesus Christ. You must bask in the sunshine of who Jesus is and what He has done. Novenson, when he tells this story in person, he describes this, this hiking group that had gotten lost on a mountain in New Hampshire overnight. All of this stuff had happened to them. They were, they were shutting down. They were hikers, so they knew... Our life depends on getting to this external heat source. And so what they did is they hiked around until they found a a rock face of the mountain that was facing the sun. And they just laid on it. And the sun just bathed them. And they warmed up. And the rock beneath them that had been heated by the sun bathed them from the backside and, and warmed them up. And slowly by slowly, gradually, they began to warm up again. And we're saved from hyperthermia. That's what Novenson is getting at when he's talking about this. this. That's what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about this. The nature of hyperthermia is you can't save yourself. You can't shiver enough, exercise enough, think your way into a warm climate enough to raise the core temperature of your body. You can't save yourself from freezing. You can't save yourself from apathy. Someone external to you has to do it. Someone who is hot and warm and alive and near has to do it. And Jesus, as you described here, is just the man for the job. So he's saying, you have to, you have to, you've got to come lie yourself out on him. You've got to bask in him. You've got to, you've got to be connected to him. You've got to run to him for the source of heat. It's not just Jesus 
that you've got to bask in. Jesus himself wouldn't say that. He zooms in on one thing in particular in this passage. Did you pick up on it? It's his love. In Ephesians, what what does he have against the church in Ephesus? I love this. Jesus isn't the angry parent that only sees bad stuff you do. He's not the one who, like, you can never measure up, you can never do good enough for him if you belong to him. Like, no, he, he spends the first half of this letter to the church in Ephesus. Hey, I saw that. That was awesome. You guys, like, hats off to you. Be encouraged. The way you have refuted these false teachers, the way you have held fast to my word, the way you have persevered in, in temptation, I noticed, I saw, it mattered. But what did he hold against them? This church that seemed to be doing so great. What he held against them is, you have forsaken your first love. This marital talk. That's romance talk. That's love talk. You've forgotten your first love. He's saying, things between me and you are not the way they were when you first met When I first made you alive. Things were honeymoon then. Things were on fire then. Faith was easy then. Obedience was desirable then. I was beautiful to you. I was captivating to you. And he's saying, do you know how far you have fallen from that first love? Do you know how far you have come from the way things used to be? This happens, right? This happens. It happens in relationships. It happens in your parents' marriages. Love grows cold. And when love grows cold, the relationship starts to break apart. And Jesus, thank God, is the one in the relationship who says something about it and does something about it. That's what he takes issue with. We'll come back to that, but first a practical point about repentance. The third and last point. Does all this talk about Jesus must be the external heat source? He must be the one who warms your cold heart. Does all this talk about you can't save yourself from freezing, you can't save yourself from apathy, does all that mean just kind of sit back apathetically and wait for all this to happen? It could sound that way, I get it. It could sound like where we're going with this is just let Jesus warm you up. Is that what, the, is that what Jesus says though? No, not at all. Jesus goes into, do this now. Do that now, tonight. Don't put it off till tomorrow because you've got to watch the 13th episode of House of Cards. Tonight, people, tonight he's saying, do these things. So we've got to hold together these two things of Jesus is the one who has to extricate you, save you from your apathy. And yet Jesus calls you, every one of you, Christian or not, to do something about your apathy. And this is why I phrased this last point, repentance is less emotional than it seems. It's not something that comes directly out of the passage, but it's something that I think we should we have to say because if you're like me, 99% of the time you want repentance to be emotion-driven. Man, I feel so convicted that I gossiped about that friend. Therefore, I'm going to go talk to them and apologize. Or, man, I feel just so bad that I haven't like been at church in a long time, so I'm going to go to church. Or, man, I never realized that guy was so lonely and I haven't even never said hi to him one time. And therefore, because I feel sad and I I feel empathy for him, I'm going to go talk to him. Like, we want to live emotion-driven, emotion-catalyzed lives. And if you treat repentance that way, you'll be waiting till the day you die to repent for the first time, to change, to turn, 
to listen to Jesus and face Him and walk towards Him. I guarantee you'll be waiting till the day you die to start. If you want repentance to be this warm-hearted kind of thing that your emotions throw you into. What are the implications if this is true? That you're, If it's true that your feelings will, sometimes they will, but rarely. If your feelings will rarely lead you to repent and to walk by faith, what should lead us into repentance? What, what happens in this passage? Let's not make it up. Let's see what Jesus himself says. What should lead you and me to continual daily reorienting our life back to him? His words. I'm not going to go here to, to spend time on this, but take a little mental trip later tonight and ask yourself, what else could be the chief motivator of your repentance and reliably lead you back to the Lord, back to truth, back to life? Everything else is fickle. Everything else is prone to to getting it wrong or being misunderstood. Jesus and His words to us is what is designed to lead us to repentance. If you just rely on your emotions, this is what's going to happen. Apathy, if if apathy could talk, apathy would say this. uh, Okay, look, you're really like you're not letting this thing die about repenting. So here's what we'll do. Um... I'm fine with you repenting, but make sure it's genuine. Make sure you really mean it. Otherwise, it's just going to feel disingenuous and just fake. So I'm fine with you repenting when it feels like the time or when it feels right. Did you detect the lie in there? Catching on now? You're starting to cross-examine the lies that apathy tells? What's the problem with that statement? What's the problem with the lie? You're never going to feel like it's the right time, right? Because you're apathetic. When I'm apathetic, it's never the right time. Tomorrow is always the best time. Later today is always the best time. Next semester is always the best time. After I graduate college and get serious about God, that's the best time, right? Tune in to the stupidity of apathy. It's lying to us all the time. We won't. The time will never be right if we listen to it. And so it has to be Jesus in real time, in a living way, in a sharp-edged way, speaking to you now. Turn. Come to me. Do the things you did at first. Remember your first love. We have to be people who are motivated more by God's Word than our feelings. And when your feelings do lead you to repent, thank God, because that's a really sweet blessing. It happens. I don't think it's normal, but it happens. Let's end here. I said we'd come back to the love of Jesus. I want to end in a very practical place. We should all be leaving here tonight, no matter where you are with God, doing something. It's very practical. Jesus is very practical here. He issues lots of commands. And so I want to be practical when we leave. If you're the apathetic person, in other words, if you have a pulse and are sitting in a red chair tonight... Listen, or standing behind a pulpit because I'm not in a red chair and I qualify for everything we've been saying. Start here. Why don't you start here? Take some notes. Find what, what of the next five or six things I tell you fits best with where you're at and go for it. Tonight. Start tonight. Repeat. Here's the first thing. Repeat to yourself over and over and over and over again. My God loves me and my God knows me. Repeat to yourself that. Repeat that He is near. Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Bask in it until you believe it again, until it warms your cold heart up. 
repeat, repeat that and, and extrapolate from that. Jesus loves me. He's, he's, it's not just Jesus loves me. He loves me in this apathy. He loves me in this spiritual malaise. He loves me in this place that I'm at that I never thought I would get to. He loves me in this place. I don't even know what it is. Repeat to yourself. Remember that you, if you belong to Jesus... And if you don't, why not belong to Him tonight? Look to Him by faith and acknowledge your need for Him. But Jesus is saying, if you belong to me, don't you know that you matter to me? Don't you know that you affect me? Don't you know that what you do, don't you know that your attitude matters to me? Don't you know it affects me in some mysterious way? Don't you know that, He says? Don't you know this is reciprocal? Don't you know, he says, that your God loves you and is near to you? God loves you like a father loves a child, like a father loves a son, like a father loves a daughter. I shared this with you all before, but my last stop every single night of their life is Eli's bed and Addie's crib. And every single night I get down on my knees next to Eli and I say, I love you so much. And I go over to Addie's bed and I rub her head and I said, Addie, I love you so much. We pray for you tonight. On, the, on, the, on normal nights, neither of them is aware of it at all. They just lie there and I go to bed. And it mattered to me because I said it and I meant it. But on the best nights, Eli will say kind of in his stupor, I love you, Dada. And if you really love someone, reciprocity is the best thing in the world, right? If you've ever said I love you to someone and they didn't say it back, it crushed you. Did you know that reciprocity is important to the living God as well? When he says to his people, I love you so much. Don't you know how he longs for you to say, I love you too? Don't you know? That's the first to-do item. Repeat this. Repeat, repeat. Put it before your eyes until you believe it. Second thing, if that doesn't work for you, remind yourself God is not expecting you to make the first move in repentance. You can't. Repentance is never the first move. It's only ever the second move. Because to repent, you had to have been brought to your attention. You had to have been woken up. You had to have been convicted. You had to have heard God's word in some form or another, which means Jesus got there first. Which means Jesus is more interested in your repentance than you are. Which means all He's calling forth from you is a response. Not for you to get the ball rolling. Not for you to get your act together. Not for you to fix yourself. But for you to simply respond to Him already being present. Already beginning to extricate you. Don't ever think repentance is the first move. It never, ever, ever is. It's only after God has already made the first move towards you. Third, talk about about your apathy the way God talks about your apathy. Stop saying, man, I'm spiritually dry. Stop saying God feels far away. He's not. Start saying, I've forgotten my first love. Start saying, I've fallen out of love with the God who loved me first and the God who still loves me. Start describing your apathy in such vivid, real, realistic terms that it pains you to talk about it because it should pain us to talk about it. Talk about it that way and you'll find emotion coming back. You'll find ice thawing. You'll find heart warming when you're brutally honest about it. And we stop using euphemisms like I'm spiritually dry. Let's stop here in in this last one. Say to the Lord, as often as you remember, who are you? 
say out loud on the way to your car tonight before Denny's, before you watch House of Cards, whatever. Deal with it. Say to yourself, say to the Lord, Jesus, who are you? And expect Him to answer you. Where do His answers come? Wherever you have heard His Word preached or taught or put up on a poster or reminded most recently. Let that be His answer. So if this was me this week and I said, and I say tonight, Jesus, who are you? His answer has already come. It was Sunday morning when I heard again from Genesis 22 that God is the one who gives the sacrifice, not the one who demands the sacrifice. God is the one who does the work for you, not the one who demands the work from you. And that brings such rest to me and, and because I suck at working. I suck at making God happy and working my way back to Him. Jesus has already answered my question, who are you and what are you like? He would answer it last week at RUF. I'm not the teddy bear, Ben. I'm the king of history, the king of reality, and I'm for you, and I love you. And he would answer his question with tonight's message, and he would say, Ben, don't you know that my last stop on your night is speaking over you, I love you so much. Remember your first love. Remember your first love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to remember our first love. We want to feel warmth returning. This is a lot. Would one of those things we just talked about at the very end, would one of those things be something that we do tonight as our first clumsy move towards repentance, towards remembering, repenting, drawing near to you because you're already near to us? And I pray for my friends who may not know you or know where they are with you, that you would come to them and say, hey, if you don't know me, I'm right here. I stand at the door and I am knocking listen and let me in and I will come and I will call you son and I will call you daughter and I will make you good again. Amen.